Well, my friends, I'm glad to be back with you. We are at the end of chapter five. Um, and, and the reason that's funny is because we started that in January. So we, we have made it through one whole chapter of the Bible, but it's an important chapter, and we're going to continue this morning studying the Sermon on the Mount. Would you please pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. So in 1914, in the Canadian House of Parliament, a man named Mr. Graham stood up and he argued against the death penalty. And when he did it, he mentioned a well-known verse of Exodus, the same one that Jesus cited this morning. And he said this, he said, we can argue all we like, but if capital punishment is being inflicted on some man, we are inclined to say it serves him right. That is not the spirit, I believe, in which the legislation is, enact is enacted. If in this present age we are to go back to the old time of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, there would be very few honorable gentlemen in this house who would not, metaphorically speaking, be blind and toothless. So once again, what Jesus has done here is that he's picked up on something that we all wrestle with, that our ancestors wrestled with, that those in the early 1900s wrestled with, that we now wrestle with, revenge. And the thing that makes revenge such a really tricky topic for Christians to talk about, and, and truthfully for the world in general, is that we don't like the word revenge. That just sounds mean, doesn't it? And we don't want to be mean people. So what we do, what we do, instead of saying the word revenge, which is what we intend, we like to use words like justice. Because justice is a word that everybody can get behind. Right? We, we all have no agreement on what justice means, but we all can stand behind it. The death penalty, however, is an example of how we conflate revenge and justice. So that you can understand this on a very personal level. Let me ask you to picture someone in your mind whom you love so deeply and you cannot picture your life without them. Got it? Got that, got that image of someone? If they were ruthlessly murdered tomorrow, would you want revenge? Now think about this. If you did want revenge, would you articulate that to a reporter who asked you about it? Have you ever noticed that nobody goes on TV after one of these events and says, I want revenge? What did they say? I want justice. And sometimes that may be true in the pure sense of justice, but many times what it means is I want them to suffer. I want them to suffer the way that my loved one suffered or that I suffered. Let me go a step further with this into some really murky water. Here's our nation. We're once again reeling in the wake of another mass shooting of children. And once again, we have chosen our sides in the debates on gun control. 
And what we've done in, in that debate is we like to hide behind words like freedom and rights to cloak our hearts from the word revenge, or at least the ability and capacity to take revenge if that's what we're seeking. Think about Jesus' words here for a minute. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So true to form, Jesus is starting from a place of familiarity. You should be well acquainted with this pattern by this point in the Sermon on the Mount. It's an expression that was known not only to, among the people back then, but it's one that we still use today. Even people outside of the church walls know about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it goes back to Exodus 21. And if you were to go back and look at Exodus 21, what you would find out is that it's a chapter about restitution in times of conflict. And what you'd also discover is that when you take it as a whole, when you look at Exodus 21 as a whole, it's not as scary as when we pull out this one particular line and use it when it is convenient to our given situation. That's a good rule of thumb for the whole Bible. Don't just pull out the lines that you like. Look at the whole context. So having named what the people already know, Jesus says to you, but... I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. Notice quickly that Jesus says, do not resist an evildoer. That does not mean that we should not resist evil. In fact, much of Jesus' life was spent resisting evil, particularly, particularly during his temptation in the wilderness that we remember this time of year at Lent. Instead, what Jesus is getting at here is how we can go about breaking that cycle of evil that once it starts in our interactions with others can quickly get out of control, particularly those who harbor evil in their hearts. In cases of revenge, the expectation, the expectation is exactly what revenge is. I will, I will get you back for what you have done to me. That's what's expected. That's what's expected. And that's how the cycle continues. I will give you back exactly what you have given to me. So in order to break the cycle, you have to break the expectation, which is why Jesus says, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. Do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. If someone hits you and you turn the other cheek, that is not what is expected. That's not what we teach out in the world. We teach that if somebody hits you, you turn around and you clock them. So for you to turn the other cheek, that is not, that's not the expectation. And so can you see how quickly that cycle gets broken? Because you didn't respond the way that you were supposed to. Now that doesn't mean the evil won't keep trying, but what it means is that you're refusing to participate in it. 
There was a time when America's sport, baseball, was a very segregated activity. And there was this young man, a truly gifted player who broke the color line on April 15, 1947, when the Brooklyn Dodgers put him out on first base. So in 2013, a movie came out depicting Jackie Robinson's journey. And what I wanted to show you was the scene where he's in the owner's office, this is Harrison Ford's character, and he's negotiating his contract. And I went back to look at the scene and I realized, you know, there's going to be kids in the room when we do this. This is not going to be the right scene for church. So instead, what I'd like you to do is take a look at the trailer for this film, and I want you to especially hone in on Harrison Ford's character about what he says he's looking for in a ball player. My daddy left us. I was only six months older than you are now. I don't remember him. You will remember me. Jackie Robinson. A black man in white baseball. I want you to know I'm there for you. Yeah, my heart. Think about the abuse that he's gonna take. Your enemy will be out in force, but you cannot meet him on his own low ground. What you gonna do if one of these pictures throws through your head? I'll duck. <laughs> Mark my words and circle this day. Negroes are gonna run the white man straight out of baseball. This ain't the America I know. You hear me? If they knew you, they would be ashamed. If Robinson can help us win, then he is gonna play on this ball club. You don't belong here, and you never will. Get off the field. Brooklyn Dodgers ain't changing our way of living. Where are we down? You are not the only one with something at stake here. You want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? No, I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. You give me a uniform. You give me a number on my back. I'll give you the guts. I want a player who has the guts not to fight back. It takes very little of us to go ahead and enter the fight because that's what the world expects of us. Jesus had this moment too when he was being mocked and they were trying to raise his temper by calling him the king of the Jews and Pilate asked, is that what you think of yourself? Are you the king of the Jews? And what Jesus said is, that's what you, that's what you have said. So Jesus gives us some concrete examples of how by doing the unexpected, we break that vicious cycle of the violence of revenge. So you turn the other cheek, and it's absolutely true that in somebody else's rage and anger, they may they may get a good shot in on the other side too. But when the dust settles, you will have been the one to make that move towards peace. In all of these actions, Jesus calls upon us for creative, surprising, transforming initiatives. 
I once found myself in the courtroom where the plaintiff was hell-bent on revenge against the defendant. It was a case of embezzlement, and the defendant was most definitely guilty. That had been proven, it had been admitted, and by the time that I entered into the situation, restitution was already in the works. And as you might imagine, in, in a case of embezzlement, restitution means that we're starting to pay back the money that was stolen. But that wasn't enough for the plaintiff. He wanted to see the defendant suffer. And he won. And in the process of his winning, when he went up to take the stand, he got up and he pontificated all about the Bible. And what an amazing person of faith he was. And he was the most self-righteous person that I have ever met. And I remember walking out of that courtroom that day disgusted. Disgusted that someone who truly claimed to be a follower of Christ would be so quick to make that jump from restitution into full-blown revenge. But the truth is that most of us only want to follow Christ when it suits our purposes and works towards our own objectives. Can you imagine how different that case would have gone if instead of pursuing suffering, the plaintiff not only accepted the restitution, but then offered to do it without charging interest or reducing the full amount, since the coat had already been taken, offering the cloak as well. But what the plaintiff did was they perpetuated this cycle by seeking revenge. And because of that, he lost the relationship with everyone in that courtroom that day except for his most ardent supporters who believed that they were just as self-righteous. Turn the other cheek. Offer more than what is being asked. And then Jesus throws in this part, this part about giving to everyone who begs from you. Well, now what do we do with that, church? Because right now, this is the season when we have panhandlers on every corner from here to Sarasota. So what do we do with these words of Scripture? Notice that Jesus didn't say, give money. He didn't say, give food. But we are to give something, and it's something that's specific. We are to give peace. So what might that look like? Does that mean that you acknowledge the person? Have you ever noticed that sometimes you get to those intersections, you see somebody out of the corner of your eye, and all of a sudden your radio becomes the most fascinating thing in your car, right? So does it mean that we spread peace by acknowledging the person in front of us? Does it mean that we speak a kind word? Does it mean that we refrain from speaking an unkind word? Maybe it's that we just give them the benefit of the doubt that they are not a scam artist. The heart of what Jesus is going for here is for us to step back and examine our own thoughts and behaviors to the point where we change them in order to facilitate more peaceful relationships. To hone in on this idea of peaceful relationships, Jesus takes the cycle a bit further and he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise 
on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The action that Jesus is asking us to take here is to pray for our enemies. Now let's get honest about that, church. We don't do that very often. Think about those times when your enemies have made it to the top of your prayer list. And yet, if I came in one day and I stood before you and said, friends, big news here. Jesus died on the cross to make you comfortable and rich. You would look at me and be appalled. But before you rush to judgment on that, think hard about what you do pray for. If it seems too much that you would just outright pray for your enemies, then go to the larger picture of the Sermon on the Mount, which is really about how our lives are transformed as followers of Christ. And you pray that God would change your heart towards your enemies. Because at the end of the day, as Jesus reminds us, the sun that shines on us also shines on them. And the rain that covers us covers them. So we share in the blessings of creation with those that we love and those that we don't love because whether we like it or not, we are all created in the image of God who has provided all that we have. That is not easy work. It is much easier, isn't it, to love those who love us? But Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing. Did you catch that dig right there? The most despised people in Jesus' time were tax collectors. They were thought so little of, and Jesus is saying, hey, you can't love your enemies? You're just like a tax collector. What an insult. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? That's what's expected. You're expected to love your brothers and sisters. And Jesus is trying to get us to do something that is unexpected. Do not even the Gentiles do the same, he says. If you go back to earlier when we're talking about turning the other cheek and giving more than what's been taken, we're talking about unexpected responses that break a vicious cycle. It is an unexpected thing in our culture to pray for our enemies, especially right now. One of the hardest things for me to see on social media is when people that I know, people that I know, people that, that are part of the larger church who claim to be people of faith, when they put up a post, that supports their issue, but then takes the next step of belittling the other side or making the other side the enemy, we are in a dangerous place. And we're in a dangerous time for our nation because we've, we've passed that tipping point, haven't we? We've passed that tipping point of disagreeing with one another, and we've reached that place of negating the value of people on the other side. They are now somehow the enemy. We're all one country, but we're now the enemy of one another. So if you're a tried and true Democrat, the world expects that you will only love other Democrats and that you will vehemently 
oppose Republicans and vice versa. It's always interesting to me that when there is a break in party lines, it is because nine times out of ten, the root of that break is a core value of a faith conviction. And when that happens, there is not that belittling of the other side because it's rooted in a place of strong faith that recognizes that we are to love our enemies. Jesus concludes this section by saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I only use that translation because that's the translation that's found in the Pew Bibles here in the church. I don't think it's the best one. A better translation of the Greek is to say that we are to be complete as the Father is complete. And what that means is that when Jesus said the rain falls on us all and it shines on us all, we are all to launch out with the love of God for the enemy, which goes out to all. It's about being whole and being complete in our love towards others, including our enemies, as God's love includes the just and the unjust alike. We are not always going to get it perfect. That's why I don't want to use that, that wording of perfect. But we can strive to be complete in our love by turning the other cheek, giving more than is asked, loving those who hate us and praying for our enemies. It is our way of reflecting the heart of God to the world and finding and finding the most unexpected, most creative, most faithful way to look across the table and say right back at you. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're about to come to the table together. And in this room, there are people who disagree with one another, who look at things very, very differently from one another, who have the potential at any given moment to separate themselves entirely from one another. And yet, they're all invited to the table. You have asked us to be complete in our love. And so when we do that then, we recognize that at this table, the saints and the sinners are both welcomed. That there is a place for everyone at your table and in your kingdom. So Lord, as we are fed with the bread and the cup, sustain us to be complete in our love. In your name we pray, amen.